You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. But uh, once you have your Bible... Turn in your copy of God's Word then to John 4, 43. We'll be in John 4, 43 through 54. And this is the last passage in a, in a larger section where Jesus returns again to this uh, city called Cana in, in Galilee. And really why that is significant and why we begin here is because this, these ministry events are, uh, in, in Cana act as a bookend between chapters 2, 3, and 4. Jesus is doing some ministry here. And I would just encourage you actually whether this afternoon this evening or sometime this week and you're uh, meeting with the Lord to just read John 2 3 and 4 in one sitting so you can observe for yourself uh, how Cana and these ministry events are on the on the bookends here and then in between you have these two kind of primary ministry events there Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem amongst the religious elite and particularly a guy named Nicodemus and then in Samaria at this well with this woman who is an outcast and in the midst of it all what is being brought before us is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He, he's the Savior of the world. And on either end of these are these, uh, these two signs in Cana to authenticate that claim and to authenticate his power, where he's not just uh, uh, talking about him, or like we saw in chapter 1, where many titles and many things were claimed about Jesus. But now these two miracles uh, uh, authenticate or prove that he actually has the power that has been said about him. For many people make boasts about their own ability, right? Children boast about their own uh, abilities on the playground and who's better at what game or who's better at this or that. Athletes make boasts about their athletic skill. Marketing firms, they'll promise increased sales if you follow their plan. Politicians will boast of policies to protect our rights if they're voted in. Universities will guarantee uh, high-paying jobs and degrees if, uh, if you come to their, uh, their, their institution. And whether or not they can deliver is the question, right? Many things can be said. Many things can uh, uh, be claimed. But can they actually deliver on the promise? But you know what is the worst kind of promising? The worst kind of boasting? Those who boast in order to take advantage of the hurting and desperate. Particularly in things like the medical field, where they, those that will promote a miracle drug or some sort of treatment because they know people will pay anything in order to preserve their life. Or those who will guarantee gargantuan financial returns only to then squander away a, a lifetime of savings. Or even those slick facilities that put on a good face about the quality of care and their kindness only to then after you sign on the dotted line to treat people with disrespect and neglect. And it's a similar vulnerable desperate moment that we come to in our text today. As Jesus will meet with an official who is desperate for his son and comes to him for help. And so the question that is lingering in our text is, will Jesus prove true? Will his word come through or will he too fall in line with the many, the countless others who've been unable to deliver on their word? 
Join me in the text. Let's read it and see how the story unfolds for us. John 4, beginning in verse 43, says this. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that the hour when Jesus, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's word for God's people. Now our text today flows directly out of the claim just made about Jesus in the prior passage. If you're here last week, you remember the mic drop claim that the Samaritans made about uh, Jesus, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. If you weren't here or you've forgotten, just look back at verse 42 right before we begin. Here the context is Jesus has been there in Samaria doing this work, and they make this claim. We know now that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And to substantiate this claim now, John includes this brief narrative with the official's uh, son here, so that we would further believe this truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world, or more specifically, that we might believe this. Write this down in your notes, that as Savior of the world, Jesus has a power unlike any other. As Savior of the world, Jesus has a power unlike any other. And this is really what is brought forth in both accounts at Cana. There as he turns water into wine, his word has a power unlike any other. And here too, his word has a power unlike any other. And that as we believe this, we too might have life in his name. A life that is compelled to believe and to live a certain way where Jesus isn't just some huckster taking advantage of these people in the text, nor of us. Thus, we don't need to be skeptical or suspicious or fearful of his word. He won't disappoint us. He won't leave us hanging or pull the rug out from under us, even as life sometimes feels or seems that way. And so let's dig around in the text here and see if we can't see how the text proves this point that as Savior of the world, Jesus has a power unlike any other. Here, notice this in the transitionary text here in verses 43 and 45. Write this down. Because Jesus is the Savior of the world, we can honor his glorious work. 
we can honor his glorious works. See, as the work of God is presented to us, we can do one of two things. We can disregard it, we can dishonor it, or we can honor him as the God who can only do these things. And this section of scripture here, verses 43, 44, and 45, really form a transitionary section that is uh, uh, between the two stories that's really common in John. He's deliberate about including these things. We've seen him along the way as well and, and will continue because he's intentional uh, because he wants us to grasp some things about Jesus, why he's writing and how he's organizing these, uh, these narratives about Jesus' life here. He, he's intentional uh, about this. And so in verse 43, we have this timestamp, right? It says, after two days, he departed for Galilee. He's referring back to verse 40 because, remember, he, uh, he saves this Samaritan woman. He had this uh, divine appointment with her. And then she goes back and tells the, the, her testimony to the people of Samaria. And then they start coming to him. And in verse 40, we learn that they ask him to stay another two days. And he does. He stays there teaching and ministering among them so that many are coming to believe. But he's continuing then north. He doesn't stay in Samaria forever. He has others that he has to meet with, this official that we learn here. And so look here at the map on the, on the screen just to kind of get your bearings about you uh, and where he is. So down in the lower orange portion there is Jerusalem where he was. And then remember, and most people as they would travel north, they would kind of cut east through the green section. But instead, Jesus goes straight up through Samaria to meet with the woman in chapter 4. He had that divine appointment there at Sychar. And he's continuing on now. And you see Cana there in the yellow uh, portion or the region of Galilee. And you even see Capernaum up there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is heading there and he'll kind of make a loop-de-loo in his, in his travels there as he is, uh, very intentionally has people to meet along the way. And you'll see as he's going there, he's, he has this, there's this parenthetical note. You see Nazareth there below Cana where Jesus was from. In verse 44, you have those, that parenthetical note about Jesus uh, was, himself had testified that he has no honor in his hometown. Now, there's no parentheses actually in Greek. The publishers just add it here. But there's, as he's journeying his way up there, he, they include this, but he doesn't elaborate on it. John just kind of drops it here uh, without elaborating on it. If you want to go deeper in your understanding there, then read Luke 4 at some point this uh, week as well, and, and you'll, uh, you'll, you'll grasp it. But why does, why does John just mention this here? Why, why, is, why, why is he just kind of dropping about this dishonor here? Well, really, it's to show the contrast between his reception at Samaria and all throughout Galilee, but not in his hometown. Okay, the, the, those that knew him from his childhood knew him. They're like, well, this is Joseph and Mary's son. He's the carpenter. He's the kid that we used to play ball with or, or, or whatever. This, this, he's not the savior of the world. This has to be a joke. Uh, the, all these things that are being said about him and they disregard, they dismiss or they dishonor the work that Jesus has done along the way. But not so. Uh, John is contrasting here with the Samaritans and even the Galileans where they've heard the testimony of the woman. They've heard the teaching of the women and they believe they believe Galileans had been there we, we learned they seen the work and heard his teaching that we read about in in chapters two and in three they saw him likely cleanse the temple they'd heard his about his teaching and his baptizing here and he continues on see Jesus isn't just hindered note this Jesus isn't hindered by the rejection or the reception of the people he was on a rescue mission for his children He's teaching the word of God, doing the work of God in order to save the people of God from uh, every tribe and tongue and nation. Here, the Jewish people and the Samaritans, this is why he came. 
He came to save us from the wrath of God. He came to rescue us out of the domain of darkness. He came not just to put on a circus or a show, but to save his people. And the question is, for them and even for us today, is will we dismiss it or will we honor him as Savior for the glorious work that he has done? The glorious work that he did in his life to show us how we might live, to show us how we might have newness of life and his glorious work on the cross as our substitute, as the atonement, bearing the consequences that we deserve for his sin. Will we honor him for it, church? I pray that we will. Maybe maybe even now we just need to take a moment to before the Lord, even even, even now, and, and, and right on in your notes or in your own heart to say, God, I honor you for saving me. God, I honor you for this work that you've done, how you've answered my prayers. God, I honor you for what you did in my friend's life or my mom's life. Mark 7, 37, we're told that the people honor because, or the people marvel at Jesus because he does all things well. The work of God is always done well, done perfectly, done gloriously. We sing to the Lord for he has done gloriously, Isaiah 12, 5 says. But I admit it's difficult to dismiss the work of Jesus, even if it's just his reputation. But maybe you've never experienced it for yourself. Let today be the day of your salvation. And let's continue in the text to see how this man, this official, comes to grips with who Jesus is. So here's the second point as the text goes on. Because Jesus is the Savior of the world, we can humbly implore him in our desperation. This is how we come to Christ, humbly imploring him in our desperation. Look at verse 46. It says he comes again to Cana in Galilee. So we saw that. We saw the bookends. And he's met there by this official from Capernaum. Now, this is official. It's a royal officer. It could also be translated a petty king, somebody with a high ranking. He was likely one of Herod, the ruler, the Roman ruler, not the king, although some people called him King Herod. He wasn't actually a king, but he was a Roman ruler over that region. And this man was likely one of his officers. Some speculate it was Chuzza. You read about in Luke 8. I'm not sure we're not even told. All we know is that he is an official. He has a high standing. People uh, serve him and he has an authority in that region. And he's based in Capernaum. And Capernaum is uh, 20 miles away, depending upon where you place Cana. We don't know where Cana is. They put it on the map there, and, and uh, that's just kind of a likely location. It's not, uh, you can't go there today like you can Capernaum, but somewhere in that like 16 to 25 miles-ish away. And this man comes to Cana to meet Jesus. He doesn't wait for him to come to Capernaum because he's desperate. He's made this journey really for one reason. His son is deathly ill. You see that there? This official whose son was ill. And this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea, and so he went to him. It's so important that he goes himself. A high official with people at his, at his beck and call, servants that he could have sent to talk to Jesus. He could have even sent a retinue to bring Jesus to Capernaum and, and, and brought him there. No, he is so desperate. This is so important to him that he goes himself. His son is deathly ill. We have no details about how old the son is or with what. It just doesn't matter because he's going to die. In verse 47, he comes to him and it says he asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. 
This word that he, that he asked them is actually a kind of a wimpy translation. It doesn't, doesn't capture. He begs him. He implores him. He pleads with Jesus to come. There's nothing casual about asking uh, that's, that's going on here. Hey, Jesus, you know, if you have some time, I know you're kind of a busy guy and all that, but, you know, if you happen to make your way to Capernaum, could you come maybe stop by my house if it can fit in your schedule to, to come and, and, you know, maybe look if, if, if it's okay to come and look at it. No, no, nothing casual. He is pleading with Christ for this Jesus please heal my son it's the kind of prayers offered at many bedsides in many hospital rooms in many desperate moments it's the kind of pleading and imploring and begging that many of you are doing even now or have done at some point in your life. Jesus, please heal my daughter. Jesus, please heal my, my marriage. Jesus, please heal my broken heart. Jesus, please, please, please heal my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, my friend, my neighbor. Please heal this situation. Those moments where you find yourself, you don't even know what else to ask, where the anguish is real, and all you can do is just ask for help, for healing. And this is how he comes to Jesus. Please heal my son. And he comes in desperation. But what do you make of Jesus' reply to him in verse 48? The officials humbly imploring Jesus in desperation. What does he say? Unless y'all, tell a Texan didn't uh, translate this, because the U is plural here. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. Jesus is saying this not just to the official, but to his servants, the disciples, the small crowd that's around there. He's saying this, he's responding to the man, yes, but to uh, all, everybody there and we who are eavesdropping on this, this uh, scene 2,000 years later. Why does he say this? Jesus, callous? Just not care about the son? No. I don't think it's that at all. Anything, Jesus cares more than anyone. His reputation is the one on the line. He has more skin in the game than than anyone. He's the one who, who created this kid. He's the one who came to save people. No, he, he knows. He knows exactly what's in our hearts. He knows exactly what's in the, 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 the dad's heart. He knows exactly what is in the, the people that are gathered there. He knows when we're entertainment-driven, we're just there for the show or the spectacle. He knows when, we, when we're feeling entitled about things. He knows when, when we think that we deserve the blessing, we deserve the healing. Why aren't you doing this? And by this statement, the reason he replies in this way is to draw out the authenticity of the dad's faith. A faith that has humbled him. A faith that has directed him to Jesus where he is going nowhere else. He has come. He has humbled himself even by his second request where he addresses Jesus as Sir or as Lord. 
Probably not a divine acknowledgement here, as we would say Jesus is our Lord, but an official title, a title that was used often there. He himself, this official, was probably addressed as Lord in some uh, cases. But here is this man humbling himself and just simply asking, come before he dies. See, faith humbles us and faith directs us. Humbles us to where we realize we can't do this on our own. And it also directs us. Faith directs us to the only one who can. The one who has a power unlike any other. And it's moments of desperation like this that show the authenticity of faith. That when the sun comes up and things get hot and it starts to scorch, does the flower of our faith wither away and die or does it blossom in the fertile soil of faith in Jesus Christ? Do these moments of desperation direct us closer to the Lord or harden us into rejecting and walking farther away? See, we can, because he's the Savior, we can come to him, asking him, begging him, in these moments of desperation. But in these moments of desperation, it also shows the ability of God's power. See, here's the third point we learn. As Savior of the world, we can take Jesus at his word. We could simply take him at his word, for this is what faith is. This is what genuine belief looks like. After Jesus uh, questions in this way or makes this statement, look at the official's second, or after the official makes the second request, look at what Jesus then says in verse 50, which is is, is is the high point of this passage here, where Jesus says to him, Go, your son will live. No specifics on how just that it will happen. Your son will live. And church, don't miss it. It was enough for the official. He believed, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoke to him and went on his way. He believes, takes Jesus at his word and heads on north back to Capernaum. No questions, no treatment plans, no diagnostics, no uh, requests for details. He just takes him at his word and goes. And this blows my mind. In our information age, we want all the details, don't we? Something happens, we're at a moment of desperation, and we we want all the answers. We start asking Alexa or Siri or Google or whatever for for the answer. We we, we Google it, we we want it. But the reality is, sometimes we don't get answers. Sometimes the answers we get, we don't like. Other times we get answers that were too much for us to handle. And sometimes just doesn't go the way that we want. But what we do have is God's word. It's God's God's word that is true and trustworthy. God's word that compels us to move and to go forward. And this is the example of faith all throughout the scriptures. Ken Hughes made a helpful connection like this in his commentary on this passage of how, how faith, it just compels us to go. Think back even to Abraham. God tells him to go to a land I, uh, I will show you. Doesn't give him a map, doesn't put map out directions on his uh, mobile device. He just goes with very little detail. And so too the official. Go, your son will live, and he goes. He goes. And this is the way of, of faith. 
It's what the writer of Hebrews brings out in Hebrews chapter 11. Just turn over there for a second because I want you to see this. Hebrews, it's turn to the right in your Bible. Get through John and Acts. Then you have the letters written by a guy named Paul. And you'll come to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. You can find it. Just listen to this. Now faith, here's a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Sounds kind of like uh, what the man just exercised, the official. God had said it. He was sure of it. He didn't see how. He didn't know. But see, faith makes us see differently. Faith makes us think differently. Faith makes us want things differently. And this is what compels him to, to go. It makes us, us, us see. Abraham does it. As, as I mentioned, just go over to verse 8. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. All he had was God's word. He took him at it. Lest we think it was just Abraham, uh, Sarah too. Go down to verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. She, God had said this word when she was, she was still in her old age. She's 75. It wasn't until 90 when she had it. That was laughable, right? And she did. And God came through on his word that he would promise that many descendants would come. They didn't know how. They didn't know why. All they had was God's word and they followed in faith. This is what the saints of old had. And so too, by faith, we walk according to the word of God, believing in the promises of God, believing that God's word has a power unlike any other. That's why we continually come back to the book. That's why we continually immerse ourselves here. One is a reminder that God has won. And he won. Jesus won on the cross. So we come back to remind ourselves of the goodness of God that we need not fear. It's why we come back to remember the promises of God. He's promised wisdom to you if you ask. Did you know that? You just, you just have to ask him. Have you taken him out of his word? God, what is your wisdom? James 1 tells you. He gives it generously. You're struggling with, with sin. God promises a way of escape from your temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, he promised we just have to see it and believe and walk in it, even if it means like we have to amputate something, cut it out of our life. God promises peace instead of anxiety, peace instead of, uh, of stress and worry in Philippians 4, if we would just pray, if we would just come to him. He promises a purpose and good being worked out through our life circumstances. In Romans 8, 28, all these things are under his sovereign hand, being worked out for his glory and our good, that it would sanctify us. He's promised a security and assurance that comes in his love, also in Romans 8, 31 to 39. A love that cannot be taken away from his children. A love that is not diminished uh, towards his children uh, in our life as we walk by faith. See, God isn't hindered by distance and a fixed location. No, he's spoken his word and he can. Even in the moment where his physical uh, presence is bound by his humanity in John 4, his word still has an active power. 
all throughout the globe. And so the question is, will we take God at his word and keep walking by faith? Or will we make demands for more answers? But because he is the savior of the world, we can believe that he does. That he has a power unlike any other. That his ability to save in his word is unlike any other. But it's also in these moments of desperation where we see demonstrated for us the intentionality of God's purposes and his timing and the way things come out. See, here's the last point. Because Jesus is the savior of the world, we can trust his perfect timing. We can trust his perfect timing. Come back to John 4. So we conclude. If you're still there in Hebrews 11, come back to John 4 and see how this text resolves for us. The man takes Jesus at his word, goes on his way, pick it up back in verse 51. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so just picture it here. The official, he starts his journey back north, somewhere along the road, along that path in that way. His servants meet him with great news. Your son is recovering. And 2,000 years later, we can, we can hear in our own minds the, the audible sigh of relief. <sighs> Praise God. I knew, thank you, Lord. You can feel how the tension is resolved in it. And he begins to then ask these insightful questions here. He asks then oh, the hour when he began to get better. And he says about the seventh hour, which in our time is about 1 p.m. They ate some lunch. They went to check on the sun and he was getting better. And look what it says at that exact hour. At that exact moment was when Jesus was speaking to the, to the official and said, Go, your son will live. And this is astounding. It's faith forming. And what happens? He believes uh, 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 Jesus, but not only he believes. What else does it say there? Verse 53. And he himself believed and all his household, wife, kids, servants, those there, everyone, his healing of the son, another sign to this region, proving that Jesus' word has an ability unlike anyone else. His word can change the molecular structure of H2O into wine. His word can pull a life from the brink of death. And we're astounded by the timing of it all. We're astounded by the ability of it all. This is amazing, is it not? God's timing is perfect. God's power is perfect. God's word is perfect. And the best case scenario happens. His son lives and many believes. But maybe even in this, you're asking the question, what about when the story doesn't end like this? When the doc meets you down the hallway... He says, we're sorry. When you're left there just asking, where were you, God? Why are you you not doing anything? What, what, What about this moment? Is it because you didn't have enough faith? Is it because you were too proud? You didn't ask in the right way? You weren't humble enough? You didn't follow the formula of honoring his word and, and, and imploring him humbly enough and, and taking him at his word and just you asked too many questions? Is, is, is... 
redemption, don't make, don't make that mistake. It's not about a lack of faith. It isn't about a formula to getting the things that you want. Jesus isn't a genie in the bottle that you can make three wishes and you've got, that's all you got through your whole life. But also don't make the mistake of thinking that the son being pulled back from the brink of death is the high point of this story. It's a man and his whole household being pulled back from the brink of death that is the high point of this story. A man believes his whole household is rescued. Doctors pull people back from the brink of death on the daily. Only Jesus can rescue us from the domain of darkness. This is why he came. This is the point. This is what he is bringing us to here. Sometimes doctors can. Other times Jesus doesn't. We don't always know why. We don't. It's not about the end of the story in that way. His purposes are bigger than ours. It's more important than just our physical and relational health. He's made that whole point in chapter 4. More than water, more than relationships, more than food. We need who? Jesus. And not just to get a good meal and a drink of water and to have some purpose in our relationships. We need Christ to rescue us from the wrath of God and our enslavement to sin. And he uses moments of desperation in the brokenness of our life to bring us to this realization. To show us his goodness. To show us his power that is unlike any other. To rescue sinful Humans, whether you're from Samaria, whether you're from Jewish elite, whether you're a Roman official, it doesn't matter. He is the Savior of the world. And His timing in all things is perfect. His purposes are more glorious. But make no mistake about these things, even if your story ends differently than this one. Praise God for the Roman official, right? Praise God that God can and He does. And all we have to do is ask Him for it. But rejoice today that your name is written in the book of life. Jesus isn't hindered by time. He hasn't hoodwinked you. It's not a magic formula. We have only to believe. We have only to hope. We have only to humbly press on, acknowledging that he is the savior of the world, that he has control over all these things, even as we are limited in our understanding of how all that works and why all that works and when all that that works. He is not he is indeed the savior of the world and this is where we find our hope this is where we find faith this is why we can continue to press on in the desperate moments trusting god is unlike any other that christ in his word and his ability that he won at the cross is more glorious than anything else we will ever encounter so let's pray and ask him to help in these moments God in heaven, here we are. Here we are before you, processing these things in your word, believing that you are the savior of the world. Believing that you have these purposes, God. And also uh, having our own desperate situations having our own moments where we need you to come through. And so we just begin by rolling them onto you. Lord, I need your help with, you fill in the blank. Jesus, would you please heal blank? 
We roll them onto you, God. We give them to you. We ask you to help in these situations, in these illnesses, in these relationships, whatever it might be. Jesus, we ask for your help. And even as we do, God, we would ask that you would root out any sort of entitlement that we might be feeling. God, it's, it's easy to think, I've done all these things for you, Jesus. I've prayed this way. I've lived this faithful life. Surely you, you, do, you owe me this one. And we just confess, God, you don't owe us anything. Lord, would you root out the thoughts of just how, how successful glorify you more than death. And yet it's Christ, your death, that is the most glorious. So Lord, would you just root these things out and give us a, a humble, desperate kind of faith? that really does take you at your word, that really does trust your timing, trusts your wisdom, trusts that uh, you have bigger purposes to save your people, that you are doing a work that's far beyond our comprehension. And even if you did lay out all the plans, we, it would blow our minds. And so would you just give us a simple faith to know that you are good, you are sovereign, you are alive, therefore we have hope. So we worship you because of it, God. Lead us forward, God, we trust you and we pray in Christ's name, amen.